0: like us, turn back to Hebrews again, this time chapter 6. I'm spending several hours every day for the last month or so in the book of Hebrews, just soaking it in as much as I can. Chapter 6 of Hebrews, I'm going to start at verse number 13 and read to the end of the chapter. It says, for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained. The promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters into that within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Powerful scripture. The whole book of Hebrews is powerful. Some awesome truths in there. Let me put this passage that we just read in the context of the larger purpose of the whole book of Hebrews, the original readers of this letter were failing in their Christian faith, getting tired, getting weary, too much time had passed by and they didn't think God had acted quick enough. In their patience, or should I say lack of patience, that they were developing They were starting to not pay attention to the things that they should be paying attention to, such as their own prayer life, such as getting together with other believers to encourage one another. They had become lazy in their grasp of scripture. And the writer in chapter 5 especially really gives them a telling off, really, is why are you still in the ABCs? Why aren't you not growing up past the elementary principles of the gospel message? Why are you not developing? Because the need that you have in your life will not be met by basic gospel preaching. You have a need in your life and going over the basics over and over and over again every Sunday, every week, every month, every year, same message packaged different ways is not going to bring you to where you need to be. The fact is that there is a destiny for ahead of us. There is a goal. There is an end of the story. The end of the story is not dying and going to heaven. The end of the story is the appearing of Jesus in all his glory. The end of the story is when he comes to take his inheritance and wonderful truth of wonderful truths. And that includes sharing it with you and me. And he prepares us for that ultimate day. And as we said earlier this morning, Jesus is eagerly anticipating his return. He's far more desirous of it than I think we are. He's yearning for the day when his enemies will be made his footstool. He's yearning to receive his inheritance. And the wonderful truth is that he's yearning to share it with you And with me. And he's not desirous to take it without us. He so wants us to be involved in his inheritance. That is the end of the story. But we've got to get the believer from where you are now to the end of the story. How many ever discovered that life was full of challenges? Life was full of trouble. Life was full of trials. Life was full of difficulties. We live in a hostile world. We live in an anti-Christian world. In some places of the world, very much hostile to the Christian faith whatsoever. And yet, you and I, in order to obtain, are required to complete the end of our journey. As we shared earlier this morning, it is possible to miss the goal. If we let ourselves drift, if we let ourselves not pay attention... It's very possible that come at the appearing of the Lord Jesus that we have missed the boat, we have missed the goal, that we won't arrive where we should be. And the writer of Hebrews wants to make sure that God's people arrive where they need to arrive. Now the big need that the writer of Hebrews is giving is this. We need to persevere. You have to endure. You need patience. In chapter 10, I think it is, verse 36, he says, you have need of patience. He just spells it out. You really need endurance. You need to learn to persevere. Don't miss out the goal because you're not persevering. Don't fail in the end because you're not enduring the present. And that is the thing. You need to persevere to get to the end of the story. But in order to persevere, you need to know that the goal at the end of the whole thing is real. Otherwise, there's no need to persevere for it, is there? You need to know that God is capable of fulfilling His promises. You need to know that that eternal city whose builder and maker is God is real. As a matter of fact, that eternal city, that better homeland, that heavenly homeland, that unshakable kingdom that he brings with him when he comes, that rest into which the people of God enter in that day, you and I have to know that that is more real to us than this present world. Because that's what faith is it's the substance, it's the reality, it's the conviction of what is real. And what is real is the city whose builder and maker is God. What is real is that eternal rest. And we need to be focused on the end of the story. And faith will tell you that those things are concrete. Those things are real. That's the end of the story. The world that you and I live in today is temporal and is not lasting. It's on its way out. It's been judged at Calvary. It is on its way out. And when Jesus appears again, it's goodbye, world goodbye, but hello, eternal city. Faith knows those things. And faith has got to live your present life as if that's the reality by which you live. That's what faith is. It's the substance of things hoped for. is the evidence of things not seen. But your heart and your soul and your spirit know these things. But to arrive there, you've got to be prepared. You've got to be developed. You've got to be matured. And to arrive to the end of our destination is you have to learn Perseverance. Perseverance, I'm afraid, is not an option for the believer. I can see you're excited about that. Perseverance, endurance, patience is required to get us to the end of the journey. But in order to put in that effort of persevering, you need to know that the promises that God has given to be completely fulfilled at the end of the journey, you need to know that they're real. And so God is going to do something here in Hebrews 6. He's going to go the extra mile, he's going to go the extra tenth mile to prove to us that the end of the story is real. So that you have got the motivation... It takes, when life gets you down, when you get discouraged, when life is full of challenges, when enemies come against you, when there's hard things to work through in your life, why should you just not give up? Why should you keep going? He wants to prove to you that the end of the story is real. So that you will do what you need to do to keep persevering. So that's why God swears by an oath. So we're going to look at what does it mean when God swears, when God Himself takes an oath. Isn't that amazing? When you go to court, and you're going to give testimony, you put your hand on the Bible, and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. When God took an oath, what did He? So help me myself. I mean... You know He swears because there's no greater for him to swear to. He swears by himself. So the writer of Hebrews in chapter 6, he's going to turn to the promise that God made to Abraham, and he's going to show you how to prove the reality of this promise that God swore an oath to Abraham to prove beyond all doubt that at the end of the story, really is glory he swears an oath to that in chapter 6 verses 13 to 20 you can break it down in this way how do we know that the promise is real well for verse number 15 we know the testimony of Abraham even though he patiently endured to have a son he finally got it so the promise was real How do you know the promise is real? In verses 16 and 17, because God gave an oath concerning the promise. How do you know the promise is real? Verse number 18, because God's nature and God's character is indisputable. And how do you know the promise is real? In verses 19 and 20, because you and I already experience the ability to enter into the presence of God through Christ, who has arrived there before us. And that is a foretaste of the fullness that will be revealed when he comes. Abraham received the promised blessings. This is an encouragement for you and me, because the writer Hebrews wants to make sure that you and I persevere so that we receive the blessings at the end of the story. Now, why this teaching of an oath is important is because when you get to chapter 7, which we're not going to, but when you get to chapter 7 to understand the nature of Christ as your high priest, you will discover in chapter 7, verses 20, 21, and 22 that Jesus has taken his role as a high priest, but he was not commissioned by a law to do that. He was set in that place as your high priest, by an oath. He's taken that by oath. God swore and will not repent, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So we understand what the power of an oath, when God himself takes an oath, and to realize that Jesus, as your high priest, is there because God has taken an oath. What motivation that should be for you and for me to persevere no matter what we're going through. Amen. Now the writer is writing to people here who are facing martyrdom. And he's trying to get them encouraged for some of them to lay their lives down for their faith. I'm not trying to convince anybody to do that. Nobody here is facing martyrdom. But he's given them the courage to go through with even martyrdom. You've got a high priest. He's going to get you through. There is a better resurrection. And God has given an oath that that is the case. To strengthen them, to motivate them for those things. So chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. Let's just make some comments on these verses. In chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, we discover that God had made a promise to Abraham. You know that promise back in Genesis 12? He called them out of Ur, the Chaldees and said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to give you descendants, and I will give you a land. And it was repeated in chapter 15 of Genesis that God would give him a people, and God would give him a land. But in chapter 15 of Genesis, Abraham thought he had a problem. And that problem was this. God, you gave a promise, but if you notice, I'm getting older. And time is ticking by. And this is getting more and more impossible. I'm getting older. Sarah, my wife, is getting older. This is getting more and more impossible. And so, because he didn't know what to do, he took his chief steward, whose name is Eliezer, and he made Eliezer... To be the heir to his fortune. But God said, wrong. No, Abraham, you yourself are going to have a son through Sarah. Your steward will not be your heir. You will have a son. And then in Genesis 15, the Bible says that Abraham believed God. Verse number 6, chapter 15, 6. He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. But then he asked God a question in verse number 8 of chapter 15. And let me just read the question that Abraham gave. Chapter 15, verse 8. Abraham says, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? How do I know that I'm going to inherit this land? And in answer to his question, so that Abraham would have no doubt, what he did is he entered into a covenant with Abraham. And you can read about this in chapter 15 of Genesis. Now, they're drawing on a tradition, a practice of the time of two countries or two nations or two kings. were going to enter into covenant with each other, make a treaty. What they often did is they sacrificed animals. Then they cut the carcasses of the animals in half. And they laid half of it over there and half of it over there. And the other king would do the same and he would lay half the carcass over there and half the carcass over on the other side. And that was representing the penalty of death. And as the animal carcasses were split and laid there, then those two people making that covenant or that treaty together would lock arms and walk through the midst of those sacrificed animals, through the halves of them, reciting the terms of the agreement, the covenant, and basically swearing to each other that they will keep what they have just sworn to. And if they don't, then they are inviting the sentence of death upon themselves What happened to those animals will happen to them. Can you imagine that God himself walked through the animals with Abraham? Are you getting the strength of what he is saying here? How do I know you will keep the word? He says, well, let's cut the covenant. Let's do that. Then that's what he did. And thank God for that commitment to keeping his word. In chapter six and verse number fifteen, it says that after he patiently endured did I hear hallelujah on that? Patiently endured. I wish I could say to you there was another ways to obtain the promises. But God expects you all of us to be in it for the long haul. No quick things, as much as you and I wish it was quick. But the goal is only obtained through patient endurance. Abraham, after he patiently endured, it says he obtained the promise. The fact that he obtained that promise, you can read it in Genesis chapter 1, that finally... After it was practically, it was impossible he was as good as dead, and Sarah could not possibly conceive at her age when they were both as good as dead beyond human ability to pull this off, God fulfilled his promise. Amen. So when it looks like things are getting backwards for you, I suppose we should learn to rejoice because God's just making sure that the fulfillment of the promise doesn't. Not up, not us that does it. It's God. When things are getting impossible, maybe God's just setting up the miracle. And that's just the way it works. But Abraham's experience is a witness to you, and it's a witness to me, that if we patiently endure, God keeps the covenant with us. It's a motivation. So Abraham obtained it in spite of all the challenges he faced It bears witness to the faithfulness of God. Through that son, Abraham would be multiplied, so to speak, and his descendants would become the promised people who would inherit that promised land. But then you get in verses number 16 and 17, this idea of God giving an oath. He had cut a covenant with Abraham, but in chapter 22 of Genesis, after Abraham is called upon to sacrifice Isaac, God did even more than cut a covenant, even more than give a promise. God swore an oath to Abraham. After some years after Isaac was born, a great challenge comes to Abraham. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 22. He was commanded, God tested him, he was commanded to offer up Isaac. Now, he got Isaac by a miracle. And now he is commanded to give Isaac back to God. Now, this is a hard thing. You and I can't appreciate this on so many levels. As a father having to sacrifice one's son. A father who had to sacrifice the son born in your old age. The miracle child. Sacrifice that son upon whom the entire covenant of God rests. Because if Isaac doesn't live, the promise of God falls to the ground. Wow. So where is Abraham going to get the strength to obey? He has to be convinced that the promise of God to give him descendants and to give him a land, he has to be convinced that that promise is greater Than the death of Isaac. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This is a test of faith. He has to believe that God's promise is more real than the death of Isaac. You see, you and I have to be brought to a place, uh, you know, overcoming faith victorious faith to minister for the Lord, to carry on with the Lord, overcoming faith has got to get to the point where you know that 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 the God you serve is the God who raises the dead. Amen. Amen. That God is the God who raises the dead. And God wants to get every one of us to that point because as you go out in ministry, you are being challenged with things that overwhelm you All the time. And you have to believe the promise of God and the call of God is greater than even death itself. And Abraham had to come to that. And so he believed that God was able to raise up Isaac, even if Isaac died, because God cannot but keep his promise. And the death of Isaac doesn't mean that God's not keeping his promise. Wow. How's your faith? How's my faith? Powerful, powerful thing here. He's called upon to sacrifice Isaac. That faith and his patience is put to the ultimate test, and thank God, it's a test he passed. Amen. I mean, I can't even imagine the emotions of that story where Isaac is on the altar. He's bound together with ropes. The thistles are all around to catch fire. He's got the knife in his hand and it's in the air. And when the knife is that close, then he hears, Abraham, Abraham, I know you believe my promise now. I know you believe my word. You're not even going to let the death of Isaac... Your only son, whom you love. You're not even going to let the death of Isaac stop you from believing my promise. Wow. That's powerful, isn't it? I mean, that's deep and that's potential. And when God saw Abraham respond in faith, in obedience like that, then in Genesis chapter 22, verse number 17, that's when God swore an oath. I'm really going to make it easy for this guy to believe me now. He's believed me in the most difficult of circumstances. I am now going to give an oath to Abraham. Why? To make it easy to believe. To prove my faithfulness. To prove my trustworthiness. To prove my character. I'm not just going to give a promise. I'm going to swear to the promise with an oath. Now that's amazing. Because for you and me. The promise. The fullness of the promise that Abraham received. That promise. Is the same promise. Given to you and me. You see, because Abraham wasn't just looking for the land of Canaan. When Abraham was in the land of Canaan, he wasn't home. He himself said in Genesis in a couple of places, I'm here as a stranger. I'm a sojourner. Joseph Or Jacob, speaking to Joseph at the end of his life, referred to himself as a pilgrim. And these men knew that the promised land, the earthly land of Canaan, was not the inheritance. They knew that. Hebrews makes it very clear that they were looking for a city whose builder and his maker is God. And when God swore an oath to Abraham, it's the same promise that you and I have inherited. Amen. We are the children of Abraham. We are the heirs of that promise, and I want to inform you that that promise that you are waiting on, God has sworn an oath concerning that promise which still waits for you and which still waits for me. Got it? Got your your future has been sworn to with an oath. And God took that oath concerning your future. That's how sure it is. What does it mean to swear an oath? If you're going to swear an oath, always has to, you always have to swear an oath uh, in the name of somebody with more integrity than yourself. You have to swear an oath in the name of somebody more powerful than yourself. So that if you don't keep your word that you swore in the oath, you have the the discipline or the punishment of that greater power coming down on you. Who's God going to swear an oath by? Who's greater than God? Should he swear in the name of an angel? No, that can't work because he created the angels. Should he swear in the name of the sun or the moon? Well, they're pretty faithful. They just rotate and they go around and Uh, They're pretty faithful. But no, there's something greater than the sun and the moon. God himself created it. And because there is no higher authority in time or eternity, in space, in heaven, on earth, anywhere, there's no higher than authority, God said, I'll swear by myself. Now what that means is that God is committing himself to the truth of his promises, so much so that if it doesn't come to pass, God would blow up and cease to exist. Did you catch that? That God would cease to exist if he never kept his word. And he says just to make it how strong this promise is to you, the whole plan of salvation, the whole promise to Abraham, the whole inheritance to my son, which you're going to inherit along with my son, the whole thing I have given my oath concerning this. Why did God do that? Verse 17 tells you why. Because God wants to make it easy for you to trust him. He wants to, to, what's the word I'm looking for? He wants to show you his character. He wants to let you know he can be trusted. He doesn't have to swear an oath. That's something people do. We ask people to sign covenants, put your signature on the agreement. We ask you to do all of these things because our character isn't necessarily up to what it should be. But if we put our name down and we sign it, then we could be held accountable to it. God hasn't got to do that. Titus chapter 1, verse 2, it says, God who cannot lie. This verse here, in verse 18, it says, it's impossible for God to lie. He can't do it. He doesn't have to give an oath to prove this trustworthiness. But because he is so desirous so willing, so wanting to provide you with something that will make you get motivated to persevere and to carry on, he goes that extra mile. Though he is God, he stoops down to our suspicious character and our suspicious nature, even about God. And for our sake, he not only gives us a promise, but he swears to it. By an oath binding his own existence to it. That's how certain your future is. Got it? That's how certain your future is. Why does he do it? He wants you to know he can be trusted. Why does he do this? To make sure this thing called hope never dies in you. You've got a future. God has swore himself to an oath. You've got a future. It's to keep hope alive in us. Because life can get discouraging. Life can throw us all sorts of problems, can't it? unexpected difficulties, things we never count on. Life can throw everything at us. And we can get discouraged and we can get weary and we can get tired and then we can get dull and then we can get lazy and then we get flippant and then we can get all sorts of things as life throws everything at us. But God wants you to remember, no matter what life throws at you, No matter what hostility you experience. No matter what challenges you get in life. No matter what disappointments you may experience in this life. You have a hope. It's as real as God himself is real. You have a future. It's as real as God himself is real. God's own existence is tied up with the reality of the inheritance he intends to give you. Boy, are we catching the significance of this? So, if you ever called upon for martyrdom, which I hope you never are, but these people were. You can go through with it. Because your death doesn't disannul God's promise to you. As a matter of fact, you've got a far better inheritance. Wow. Amazing stuff in the book of Hebrews here. So even though God's integrity is undeniable, He stoops to us human beings to use an oath just so He can prove to us His willingness to keep His promises. What kind of a God do we serve that would do this? He wants to show the absolute unchangeableness of his promise in the most absolute, abundant, and convincing way possible to you and me. To demonstrate his faithfulness with absolute foreignness. I'm repeating myself. But this oath he gave to Abraham, that promise he gave to Abraham, is the same promise he's given to you and me. With Abraham, I'm looking for that city is builder and maker is God. But you must understand for us to inherit at the end you've got to persevere. You've got to persevere. Don't let this world take you out. Don't let discouragement take you out. Don't let disappointment take you out. Don't let the hostility of this world take you out. Don't let trials take you out. Don't let tribulations take you out. Keep in your word. Keep in your Bible. Develop your Bible knowledge. Develop your understanding of Scripture. Develop your prayer life. Keep yourself in fellowship. Draw near in faith. Don't lose the confidence of your hope. Provoke one another to love. Don't isolate yourself. Don't separate yourself. Keep pressing. Keep pressing and keep pressing. Why should we do these things? Because God has demonstrated in the greatest way possible that his promise is true to you and me. Powerful stuff, isn't it? This book of Hebrews. It's amazing. So verse number 18, the purpose of certifying his promise to you and me is to encourage us to keep pushing, keep persevering, and keep going on. There are two immutable things. That's old King James Bible for you. That simply means two things that never change. Two unchanging things. What are they? One, his oath never changes. Secondly, his promise never changes. Because we're told in verse number 18 that there's something that's impossible for God. He can't lie. If he lies, he ceases to exist. He cannot lie. It's an affirmation of his truthfulness, of his character. It's the assurance for knowing that he has absolute integrity of his character. And he's communicated that integrity by promise and by oath. So keep pushing when times get hard. Draw upon him when times get difficult. It goes on to say that through this we have a strong consolation. We take great comfort... In this, We have a great reason to keep on going when it seems everything is against us. To keep on going and keep being true uh, to God. Then it goes on and says that we have fled for refuge, to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. To flee for refuge to something. The fact is that we have run from danger. Now, the people who received this epistle in the first place were in danger. Their laziness had put them in a place of danger. Their slothfulness had put them in a place of danger. Their their choice to coast and not grow in knowledge of the scripture has put them in a place of danger. They were drifting and drifting and drifting. In chapter 2, it says, you're drifting. Don't you let yourself drift. They were not... Gathering together. They were forsaking the assembling of themselves together. They weren't encouraging one another. They hadn't grown in their understanding of scripture. To talk about Christ the high priest and what that means. And to talk about Melchizedek was talking over their heads. Nobody got it. They had been in church for 20 years and they still didn't understand Melchizedek. How is that possible? You could be a believer for 20 years and not understand Melchizedek. We stay on basics But staying on basics isn't going to grow you up. It's not going to mature you. It's not going to put strength in your muscles. You've got to grow in all of the knowledge of the scripture. But they weren't. They weren't. So they were in danger. And they were in danger of not persevering. They didn't have what it takes to persevere because they didn't understand what it meant for Christ to be their high priest. So they didn't have what it took to persevere. Which means they weren't going to make it to the end of the story. They would be like the wilderness generation in Hebrews 3 that perished in the desert instead of crossing into the promised land. Persevere, persevere, persevere. So when it says you have fled for refuge, that's what it's talking about. You have run away from the danger That you were in and you probably didn't even know you were in danger. You've run away from that. You've rushed from that to a place of safety. You've run from the fate. From the the fate of the Old Testament wilderness generation. That perished there in the desert. In the wilderness. You're running from them. So you can join the house of God. And join the faithful of the Lord. It says take hold upon the hope. That means present action. Focus on the end of the story. Focus on it and take hold of it and discipline your soul to go for it. Keep focused on Jesus. Keep focused on the reward. Then when you get to verses 19 and 20, he says, Once the oath has produced such a certainty of your future, it gives me three pictures here. Of what this will do for you and me. In verse 19, when you know that your hope, your future is that certain, it says in verse 19 that it acts, first of all, as an anchor of the soul. Verse number 20, it says this truth shows that Christ is a a forerunner for you. And it also tells us in verses 19 and in 20 that Jesus fulfills the Day of Atonement, which I'll get to in a second. This God swearing by an oath to make you know that your future is certain acts as an anchor of the soul. Amen. Now what's the soul? That's the part of you that's not going to die. They take your body, but your soul is going to carry on. That's the part of you that's not going to die. The soul is that part of man that transcends Uh, death. When it says this hope is an anchor, that means when you're in trials and you're in difficulties, it means your mind, your will, your emotions, your conscience, all those parts of your being aren't going to be tossed around with the trials of life. Hit this way and hit that direction, it's going to be an anchor. And the boat's going nowhere when the anchor is down. This hope that you and I have so sure because God has swore to it with an oath is what keeps us in the trials of this life. Even death itself cannot annul the promise of God to us. It's an anchor to the soul. We're not going to drift if you have an anchor. Amen? It's the way of avoiding eternal loss. This anchor, he says, it's sure and it's steadfast. In other words, the boat's going nowhere, no matter what kind of a storm there is. But verse number 19 says, the anchor, interesting enough, is within the veil. Where is this anchor rooted? Within the veil means, if you know the Old Testament tabernacle, not in the holy place, but in the holy of holies. The Ark of the Covenant, the presence of the Lord, The mercy seat. That's where the anchor is. You see, here is the truth. That Christ has already arrived there. Amen? Christ has already arrived there. And he's put the anchor there. And you're holding the rope. Isn't that good news? Where are you anchored? You're anchored in your reward. You're anchored in the presence of God. You were anchored... And the ultimate promise already—it's wonderful truth. It is anchored, anchored, anchored. But then in verse number twenty, it talks about a forerunner. Now, what does that mean? It means somebody who's running before you. Let me put it this way: the forerunner is the person who has won the race. He's there already. I got good news for you, Jesus has won the race. He came first place. He won the race that nobody else could win. Nobody else made it past the veil. Why? Because they were sinful people themselves. But Christ lived that obedient, earthly life that qualified Him to go in, offered Himself in sacrifice, on our behalf, and he's put the anchor down for you and for me. Isn't that marvelous? Jesus, our forerunner, has gone before us. Now what's interesting, when he calls Jesus the forerunner, that makes him better than Aaron, the Old Testament high priest, because forerunner implies that somebody else is running after you. But nobody could follow Aaron on the Day of Atonement into that Holy of Holies nobody could but when Jesus entered the Holy of Holies you and I can run in after him marvelous truth marvelous truth and the other thing that's implied here that he's entered means he's entered into that Holy of Holies that most holy place which means that he has completed the Day of Atonement it's all finished It's all done. Nothing more needs to be done for our sins. Amen? Now, he's deliberately gone there on our behalf. As I said this morning, the eternal son became the incarnate son. And he lived life as you and I live it. Faced more temptation than you and I can imagine, but never yielded to sin, not even once. Even when the hostility of this world put him on a cross, he did not start disobeying God at that point. He was obedient, even if it meant death, at the hands of a hostile world. He offered himself. Nobody took his life from him. He offered himself. It was a perfect, it was a sinless life of perfect, complete, 100% obedience, never deviating once in thought, deed, or word, or attitude from the will of God. What a marvelous testimony that is. You see, you're not just saved by his death. You're saved by his life, which qualified him for his death. Imagine Christ doing that for you and for me. Powerful, powerful truth. His sacrifice was accepted on your behalf, on my behalf. But when he was exalted and God said, Okay, you can sit at my right hand. Forgive me for the repetition, but I love the truth. I like, I like hearing it. He didn't go back to his pre incarnate relationship with God. He took his humanity with him. Why? Because he put an anchor for the rest of humanity because he wants you and me there with him. His inheritance is not without us. Powerful, powerful truth. Now, Hebrews 7, I'm just going to read verses 20, 21, and 22. Because now the chapter 6 explains to us about the power of the oath and what it does. In verses 20, 21, and 22 of chapter 7, when Christ was made a high priest, he was put into that place by an oath. Chapter seven twenty, it says, Inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest, so he used a double negative there, not without an oath. And that's a way of really saying he really did it with an oath, not without an oath. He was made priest. Now the Old Testament verse 21, those priests were, they were made priests without oaths, but this Jesus that we're talking about, when he was exalted, he was made a priest with an oath. And then he quotes from Psalm 110, verse 4, where it says, the father speaking to the son, it says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But I forgot the first part. Did you notice I missed it? Let me quote the whole verse. It says, the Lord swore, gave an oath. The Lord swears, and he will not repent. And this is the oath that God is saying to his son. You are a priest forever. Forever after the order of Melchizedek and he was set in that role as our representative, as our high priest, not by a law, but by God swearing an oath. So the existence of God is wrapped up in Jesus representing you and me. You catch that? His existence is wrapped up. His faithfulness is proved when he has wrapped up his existence with Jesus as your high priest. Wow. That's amazing stuff. That's powerful stuff. So I want to repeat what I shared, some things this morning, simply because... I think they need to be repeated until they are written in our hearts, explode in our conscience, the reality. What does it mean that Jesus is your high priest? What does it mean that he represents you? What does this mean that he is there by an oath and cannot possibly fail? He will never repent. It will never change. These truths will never, never change. What did we say? He's the eternal Son, who is the heir of all things. But God does not intend him to inherit without you. And because man fell into sin, the eternal Son became the incarnate Son. Why? To know all about you and me by experience. To live life to the fullest like you and I have to live it laid aside his divinity, lived as a man, subject to temptations. Yes, the world assaulted him with temptations. The devil constantly assaulted him with temptations and trials and enticements to sins. He's been through the whole thing. But never once, in his 33 and a half years on this earth, never once did he yield never once but he proved himself perfectly obedient to the will of God no matter what was thrown at him why one of the reasons why is to understand our needs when we are faced with trial and temptation so he knows what to give us what kind of grace we need what kind of mercy we need what kind of encouragement we need hallelujah Another reason he went through that old experience is because when the incarnate Son became the exalted Son and he ascended on high, he does it with the knowledge of your humanity, my humanity, his own humanity, and he takes all that and he represents you and me to the Father in his humanity. Why? Because he doesn't plan on his second coming to take his inheritance. Without you and me with him. Wow. And you know what? His role as a high priest to represent you and me I got good news for you. He can never fail because he's sworn into it with an oath. Are we catching the significance of that? He gave himself to accomplish the will of God. The Old Testament tabernacle of Moses didn't get the job done. No matter how many animals they sacrificed, that veil was never rent. Those priests could never get beyond that veil, which meant this, the will of God was never accomplished. It was foreshadowed, it was pictured, but it was never accomplished. That old covenant could not perfect anything. It could not qualify anybody for entrance into God's presence, no matter how often they gave those sacrifices. But this man, who lived the perfectly obedient life, offered himself, gave himself up to death on the cross, once and for all, And it was good. And it was accepted. And the veil is now open. The will of God has been accomplished. And you and I are welcome. Amen. You and I are exhorted. Take advantage of this. Do you know how many saints in the Old Testament wish they had this opportunity? Take advantage, take advantage, take advantage. Draw near, draw near, draw near. Keep drawing near, keep drawing near, keep drawing near, keep drawing near. Keep drawing near. Every day, draw near. It is a privilege that thousands and thousands of millions of people over the centuries wish they had. And you and I live on this side of the cross. And it's our privilege to know the open veil. Amen. So let's draw in and let's take advantage. Well, what else can I say? He's sitting on the right hand of majesty on high even now as my representative and as your representative. What else can I say about him? He'll never quit. He has an eternal indestructible life, which means he will never quit away, He's always there for our needs. Powerful stuff. He will never fail. Where does He do this representation? At the very face of God. In the very presence of God. In heaven itself. He's right there for you and for me. When He exalted, when He was exalted, God invited Him to sit down. The writer of Hebrews makes a big issue of the fact that he sat down. Because the Old Testament priest never got to sit. Because the work was never completed. Because no matter how many animals they sacrificed, it never took away sin. So sacrifice another one. hundred sacrifices later, it still didn't get it good. And they kept going and going and going and going. But this man, one offering... Of a perfectly obedient life, self-offered voluntarily in death, in obedience to God, is the one sacrifice that wipes away all of our sin. That's it. One time, one time only. And when he went into that Holy of Holies, God said, take a seat. Wow. Take a seat. There's nothing further required. Isn't that amazing? What else has this high priest done for us? He's already arrived at the destination. You and I haven't. He's already arrived at the destination. But he's put an anchor in, and we're holding the other end of the rope. He is our forerunner. The end of the journey is secure. Now listen to this. And provision for the journey is also secure for us. There is nothing you and I are going to go through that he will not provide for, no matter how difficult it is. The pioneer of our faith has reached the goal. Now he's bringing us over. All of those things about Christ our High Priest, not one of those things that I just shared can fail. You know why? Because he's in that ministry with an oath. God's existence is bound up with those things. So all is guaranteed by God's oath. What provision has been granted to us? Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, don't let discouragement get the better of you. Why are you going to forfeit this journey when all of this has been set up for you? Don't let weariness, don't let discouragement stop you from pressing towards the goal. Let us be motivated to persevere, to receive. This is our high priest who has sworn into his office by God giving an oath.